Well, last week, uh, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been going and looking at the life of Jacob. And last week, we saw that Jacob is on the run for his life because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And he wants to kill him because Jacob had actually stole Esau's birthright and his blessing. And that's a big, big deal. And so he's on the run for his life. He's traveling to Haran, which is about 500 miles away. And last week we saw on day two of his journey, he pulls into the outskirts of the city and, and he lays his head down to go to bed. And as he sleeps that night, he has this dream and it's a wild dream and it's a strange dream. And it's a dream of a ladder or really more literally a stairway that goes from heaven down to right in front of him. And there's angels that are going up and down this ladder. And then we find out in the New Testament that this ladder actually is or represents Jesus Christ. But it's in that dream that Jacob finally gets the promise that his dad and his granddad both received. Isaac and Abraham received, and so he received the same promise. Now, I want to pick up the story together today, Genesis 29. And we're going to start in verse 1. I think most of us would glance over this, but it says this, Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. Now, that phrase, continued on his journey, actually literally means he lifted up his feet. And the idea behind this is, it's an unusual expression, but it's suggesting to us that Jacob now, after having this time with God, he has a new lease on life. He has a new outlook on life. I mean, here's a person who, before that dream, Jacob's heart was so full of fear. But now he's walking with a new spring in his step. Before he had the the weight of the past just bearing down on him and everything he's done and everything he's done wrong. And now he's looking with excitement to the future. Before he had been running for his life, but now he's running to look for a wife, right? That's part of why he's headed there. He now has this confidence that God is with him. Which is important because he has no idea of the challenges that await him. As we continue in the story in Genesis 29, starting in verse 2 and following, we see that Jacob finally gets there. He gets to the outskirts of Haran. And as he gets to the outskirts of Haran, he comes to a well, and there's a bunch of sheep nearby the well. Then Jacob asked the shepherds who were there, he said, Hey, do you guys know a man named Laban? Well, it turns out they know who Laban is. At that very moment, the, the, moment, the, the shepherds, they, put, they say, Hey, in fact there's a a relative of Laban's, um, Laban's uh, daughter, Rachel. And so if you remember Laban from last week or the previous weeks, Laban is is a relative of Jacob's. It's his uncle. And so so Jacob sees Rachel, and so Rachel is his his cousin. Look with me in verse 11. It says this. It says, Jacob kissed Rachel... And began to weep aloud. Now, all you unmarried guys, I want you to take note here. This isn't the best pickup strategy. Okay? I mean, you just need to know, if you're going to kiss someone, you start weeping all over the place. That is not a good thing. But actually, what we have going on here is more likely a typical Eastern greeting where they would kiss on the cheeks. But I do want you to think about it for a moment. He started weeping. Why? Well, what's his context? What's been going on in his life? What's been going through his mind? I mean, here's a guy who was emotionally spent. He was physically exhausted. He was spiritually overwhelmed. He had made this long journey. And the very moment he comes into town, 
he finds what he was looking for, a family member, a cousin. I mean, this is probably just like the ultimate relief. Of course there were tears. It's as if God gave him exactly what he needed at this point in his life. Well, the two of them chat for a bit, and then, and then Rachel runs off to tell her dad Laban about, about uh, Jacob in verse 12. Let's pick it up, verse 13. Genesis 29, 13, it says this. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things about his past. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood, which is a way of saying, I bring you in, I embrace you. Yes, you can be with us, stay with us, I'll take care of you. Well, he's going to take care of them all right, and we'll be discussing that this morning. Because Uncle Laban is about to change Jacob's life forever. Up to this point, let's kind of think about this. Jacob's an individual who has survived by relying on his natural intelligence. He survived by relying on his shrewd ability to take care of himself in any situation. True, things don't always work out perfectly for him. But even when things were bad, Jacob just had a way. He was a dude who could land on his feet no matter what it was. Well, all that's about to change. Because Uncle Laban is even more shrewd than Jacob. Jacob, I mean, here's the guy who makes the deals, who has the leg up, who has never met his match. All of a sudden, he's met his match. Jacob is now in the big leagues. Uncle Laban, he is going to get the best of his nephew, not once, but multiple times. Jacob, the master manipulator, will now sit at the feet of his intellectual superior. The scammer will now be scammed. But in the midst of all of this, God is still working in Jacob's life. So let's see how the story unfolds. Let's pick it up. Verse 14, Genesis 29. It says this, After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, and we're going to read a word here together. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the, and this is important, the name of the what? The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Very important. Leah had weak or delicate eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So Laban has two daughters. Leah is the oldest. Rachel is the youngest. And the Bible wants us to clearly know about the outward appearances of the two. The Bible tells us that Leah had weak eyes. Now, commentators can't seem to figure out the actual meaning. It could go a couple different ways. Some suggest that the eyes were weak, meaning they had no fire or no sparkle in their eyes, which was a uh, quality prize back then in the East area. But it could also mean that her eyes were soft or delicate, which in that sense, it was actually meant as a compliment. She had soft, delicate, you know, nice eyes. But that's what the Bible says about her. Now, I want you to imagine you set your friend up for a blind date. And, and, you're, and, and the friend's going to ask you, well, what do they look like? Right? I mean, that's the, that's the question. What do they look like? Are they, are they you know, are they gorgeous or are they handsome? And, and, and so the person says, well, you know, are they handsome? And your friend's like, well, they're strong. 
Yeah, 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 I get that, but are they handsome? They can lift 100 pounds above their head. Yeah, are they strong? Yeah. Is Leah pretty? Well, she has delicate eyes. You see what's happening here? There's an intentional contrast in the Bible. Rachel, it tells us, she's the hottie, okay? She's beautiful all over. In fact, the name Rachel means a ewe lamb, like E-W-E, right? A ewe lamb. But Leah means wild cow. So what we have here is a story made for Hollywood. I mean, that's what's happening. Jacob has been sent, or, I mean, on the run, but also sent to find a wife 500 miles away, and he has two options before him. The wild cow with delicate eyes or the hot little lamb. <laughs> Who's he going to choose? Who's he going to go for? Genesis 29, verse 15. What should your wages be? Jacob's ready for an answer. Look at verse 18. Jacob loved who? Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger, your younger daughter. Let's remember here. Jacob went 500 miles. This guy, for the most part, we're going to imagine, assume he doesn't have any money. He's fled his home in a hurry, so he's probably empty-handed. He's in no position to negotiate but he really wants Rachel. So he offers Uncle Laban a deal he can't pass up. He's a master deal maker, right? I know what I'll do. I'll work for you for seven years, which based on the price of a bride or a dowry back then, that was literally double the cost of what it should have been for Rachel. And he makes the deal and Laban's like, I'll take it. So the Bible sums up this seven-year period of time in one of the most strikingly beautiful verses. Look at verse 20, Genesis 29. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And everybody said, Oh, how sweet. He loves her so much that the time just flew by. And this is cool, and it works for our Hollywood movie, and it sounds good. But that actually more likely meant that the price seemed insignificant compared to what he was getting in the deal. In other words, Jake was more than willing to work seven years to pay double the price, to be patient, and to be committed for the right person. And for him, Rachel was the right person. Now, a little advice to you unmarried ladies who are here today, based on this, how about you make a dude work for you, right? I mean, come on, gals, make a guy, you know, prove he's actually really into you. I mean, don't take that too literal, that's not what it's meant to say there, but ladies, just make a guy have to work a little harder these days. But also to you unmarrieds, for seven years, they remain sexually pure which is God's great desire for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 says this, or 3 through 5, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. The word sanctified means to live in a manner that is consistent with the character and commands of God. That's God's will for all of us, to live in a manner that's consistent with the character and commands of God. So God says it's God's will that you be sanctified. And in this case, what does he say God's will for you is? That you avoid sexual immorality. 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. In this case, God's will, he says, is to, to live your life, be free of sexual immorality. What is that? It's premarital or extramarital sex. In other words, if you're not married, God's great desire for you, God's will for you is that you abstain from sexual activity until you're married. So this couple waits for seven long years. And Jacob, man, I mean, just practically, he's about ready to burst. He has a lot of hormones to keep in check. Look at verse 21. I love the Bible. It just keeps it real. So Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife. Man, my time's completed, and I want to make love to her. I mean, the Bible doesn't hold back. I mean, it just tells us everything. And I got to tell you, I was reading that going, that's just not a conversation I've ever had with my father-in-law. <laughs> just never. I mean, but the Bible, you know. Jeez. I mean, Jacob, here he's worked hard for Rachel. Now it's time to party and more, right? Verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. Now back then, you need to know, weddings were about a week long. You'd start off, you'd have the ceremony, and then you'd have this big feast together. And then instead of going on a honeymoon for the next, you know, five, six, seven days or so, they would all, friends, family, they'd just all celebrate and hang out and have a good time together. So that feast on day one is winding down. The husband heads to the bedroom, and he waits for his bride who will be escorted by the father. But a good old Uncle Laban, he had a surprise for Jacob. Verse 23. When evening came, Laban took his daughter who? His daughter who? Leah. Leah. And brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Now, so many questions come to mind. Right? Don't you read that verse and go, uh, hello? First question is, how in the world does this happen, right? How is this actually possible? In our modern world, that's not, it's not possible. But back then, culture was different. Back then, the most likely explanation is that Laban brought his daughter, Leah, to Jacob late in the evening after all the festivities had happened. It was dark. She was veiled head to toe. That's how it was. Veiled head to toe. If there had been drinking at the feast, wouldn't you say it's a safe assumption? Then Jacob's faculties are a little bit impaired, right? And so, you know, that, that would make it a, a likely explanation. But I have other questions. Where in the world was Rachel during all this? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just doesn't. Did she know about the swap? Did Leah actually go along with this? Was Leah jealous of her beautiful younger sister? The ewe lamb was, you know, the cow jealous of the lamb. <laughs> Genesis 30 appears to tell us to indicate that sister jealousy is actually part of this deception, though we don't know for sure. But verse 25 tells us the whole story, everything we need to know. When morning came, there was Leah. In the Hebrew, it says it this way. In morning, in, in, in the Hebrew, it actually says this. Uh, when morning came, behold, Leah. <laughs> 
It's like Jacob wakes up a, command, a content man. He rolls over to Rachel to give her a kiss. It's like, uh, what the, you know, what's going on here? I slept with the wrong woman. How could this happen? And then he's thinking to himself. And all of a sudden he's like, Laban. And he runs out of bed and goes after Laban. Verse 25, Jacob asked Laban at the end of that verse, and I want you to notice this with me. He asked him, why have you, and what's the word, why have you what? Why have you deceived me? Now that's very interesting. Jacob is asking this question. Jacob, who had dishonored the principle of the firstborn, he asked this question, why have you deceived me? It's interesting, it's the same Hebrew word that Isaac used when Esau told him, or when he told Esau about Jacob's deception. Genesis 27, verse 36. It's like, bingo. Jacob had, dece- had deceived in a dark tent, and now Jacob himself is deceived in a dark tent. Laban coolly replies that he was, you know, forced by custom to, you know, give away his firstborn in marriage because that's kind of how it works. Now, I can't help but think as I read this, it's just kind of maybe human nature, maybe you think the same thing. But as I read this story, you know the thought that comes to mind? Hey, man, what comes around goes around, right? I mean, that's just, as I read it, that's where my brain goes. You know, the chickens have come home to roost, if that phrase works for you. Jacob had dishonored the principle of the firstborn by cheating his brother out of his birthright. And now Jacob is forced to honor the principle he had violated by marrying Leah first. Who had Jacob deceived? He had deceived his father Isaac. Who now deceives Jacob? His father-in-law. It does make me think of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, where it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, i got to tell you, we don't have time to dig into the depth of that idea this morning. They're tough words in the Bible, without a doubt. And I don't actually know all the ways in which that works. But it's a truth principle. Sometimes we do reap here on earth. Sometimes it'll be at judgment day. It does make me think of a phrase that Martin Luther King used when he quoted a pastor that lived a couple hundred years prior to him, and it says that that pastor said, and Martin Luther King quoted it, he said, the arm of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It appears, it appears as if Jacob's reaping will come at the hands of his uncle Laban, which, by the way, Laban isn't finished yet. Look at verse 27. It tells us that Laban says, well, if you still want to marry Rachel, you can. But there's a little catch, one tiny condition. You have to work another seven years for me. Are you kidding me? What are you, nuts? Verse 28, it just simply says, and Jacob did so. And Jacob did so. So Jacob completes the final bridal week of, with Leah and then apparently marries Rachel right away. And I want you to see this verse with me, very important. Genesis 29, verse 30, it offers this final note. It says this, Jacob lay with Rachel also, 
And here's this. I want you to catch this. And he loved Rachel. And what's the word? He loved Rachel what? More than Leah. All right, gang. Everything's set up here for us. More family drama. More dysfunction. Here's a family that's dysfunctional all the way back to Father Abraham, to, to Isaac. And now this verse lets us know it's getting ready to continue on. The, the, we're going to continue the problems. And this fact will be much more evidence, evident as we see sorrow that will develop in Leah's life. There'll be much bitterness between the two sisters and much dissension amongst the children who aren't yet born. I mean, what a story. The providence of God, the re- which we're not spending time this morning on it, and it's a big idea and a big thought, but it, 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 the providence of God, the reaping and sowing of Jacob is being played out before us. Jacob deceived Esau and his father, and now his father-in-law has deceived him. Jacob ignored the principles of the firstborn rights. Now he has to honor those principles by marrying Leah first. Jacob was forced, or Esau was forced to deal with the results of Jacob's deception, and now Jacob is forced to deal with the results of Laban's deception. So what's God up to? What's happening here? I mean, obviously God allows this to happen to Jacob. Is God trying to teach Jacob some lesson? Is God trying to show you and I something? As I look through this story and as I look through Scripture, a few thoughts come to mind. And the first thought is this, is if you, if, if Jacob were going for an interview and you were the interviewer and you asked him, hey, tell me what's your greatest strength, what do you think Jacob would say in that interview? Well, as for those of us who've kind of been with us throughout the series, I think a lot of us would say, you know what? Jacob would probably say, I know how to cut a deal. I know how to handle people. I know how to negotiate a contract. I'm always in control. Nobody ever gets the best of me. And yet now, all of a sudden, it's Uncle Laban who wrote the original, The Art of the Deal. With Uncle Laban in the picture, Jacob's no longer in control. Jacob's not on top anymore. He cuts a deal but he ended up losing. He negotiated a contract, but Uncle Laban got the best of him. Do you see what's happening here? If I can use some sovereignty language here, do you see what God has done? God has touched Jacob at the point of his strength, but he humbled him. Do we see that idea of God touching us in our strength and humbling us elsewhere in Scripture? I think about the New Testament and I think about someone like Peter, the bold Peter, the one who was going to be by Jesus' side always. And when Jesus told his disciples, hey, you guys are going to all bail on me and and split because I'm going to be crucified. Everybody's like, you know, Peter's like, I will never leave you. They can all bail on you, man. Jesus, I am right with you. I am loyal to the very end. It's my greatest strength. I would never deny you. And then Jesus looks at him and said, hey, before tonight's over, before that rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. Or before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And we know that some of us know the story, right? It's exactly what happened. It's the principle that God would humble Peter. 
God would humble Jacob at the point of their self-perceived strength. And I suspect God still does that to us today. That God still reaches into those areas of our life that we feel strongest. Because it's often in those areas that we feel are our strengths that we think, hey, this is my strength. I can handle it. I can do it on my own. I don't need God in this area of my life. And yet God will humble us in that. Some of you, I started getting text after first service. A bunch of people like, yeah, I experienced my humbling. God wants our complete and total confidence to be in God and God alone, for our strength to be in God. Psalm 28, 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. God will humble us because He wants us to turn to Him and put our hope and strength and trust in Him. The next thought that comes to mind is about Jacob's unfair, unjust treatment. The question is, was he treated unfairly? And what's the, what's the answer? Was he treated unfairly? What do you think the obvious answer is? Of course, right? Yes, of course he was. Laban took advantage of his nephew. Was it fair for Laban to switch out the sisters at the last minute? No, of course it wasn't fair. Was it fair for him to you know, charge uh, another amount? So you know, another seven years that he had to work an extra? Was that just? Absolutely not. Then why did God allow it? Now this is heavy. But I don't want you to miss this. I look at the story, I think about my own life, I think about your life and what I've, the stories I've heard as I look through Scripture. It seems to me that God knew that the best way to develop godly character in Jacob was through the trials, through the challenges. Let me say it even this way, through the unjust treatment. That God knew what Jacob needed. And again, I'm talking on the sovereign level here. Some of us, we don't even want to equate God to this. That's hard for us. But as we rise to that level and we think, oh my goodness, we can see how God works in our lives. So many people go through life saying, yeah, it's, it's just not fair. And as I've said many, many, many times and we've looked at Scripture, God never promised us that life would be fair. He never promised us that we would be treated justly. In fact, I, I was thinking about it this week thinking, well, you know what? If God allowed the Son of God to be crucified, even though he was completely innocent, do I then somehow th how think that I'm going to be exempt from unjust treatment myself? No way. You see, the danger in focusing on unjust treatment is that we can become perpetual victims. First we get angry, and then we, that anger turns to bitterness, and eventually... We find ourselves victimizing ourselves. You know anybody like that? They kind of walk through life as perpetual victims. Godly character is developed in your life if you will respond positively and creatively to that unjust treatment. Isn't that what Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 is all about? It says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Because, and here's why, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, hope. Think through this with me. The Bible is brilliant when it shares this. When you suffer, when you go through challenges and difficulties, you have to figure out how to get through it, don't you? 
And when you're trying to figure out how to get through it, you're kind of, if you can look back at the time when you've been suffering, you've been figuring out how to persevere. You have to hang in there. You have to conquer, get through it, whatever it takes. You persevere. And the more you persevere in that challenge, in that trial, the more you hang in there, the more that your character is developed. And the more your character is developed, and the more people that I talk to who go through difficulties and challenges and unjust treatment, and life isn't always fair, and it doesn't always work out, and the people who persevere and who are developing their character, those people seem to have a hope that others who are victims don't. They have this hope in God. And it isn't necessarily a hope that says, hey, I can't wait to get through this issue on Monday. I've set a date and God better honor it. It's not that kind of hope. It's a hope that's like, you know what? God, God's got me. God has me. And I'm hopeful for my future. And maybe it won't go, it won't go so good on this side of heaven, but I know where I'm headed. And there's a way to elevate ourselves above our issues and priorities. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Victims miss out on the character development that God is doing in their lives. I want you to look inside for a minute because if that's been you and you've been a victim and you've been playing the victim, now again, I'm not talking things like abuse and all of that. It's a whole nother conversation. I'm just talking about things that come our way. If we've been playing the victim, man, we are missing out on this character development that God's trying to do in our lives. See, a victim is always saying, why, 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 why me, why me? This isn't fair, but listen, don't be a victim, be a student. A student says, what? What can I learn from this? What can I gain? What can I gather? That's the creativeness. That's being, being creative in the unjust treatment. In fact, you might as well choose to be a student because God will send or will allow you to go to Haran even today. What's Haran? Haran is simply any place in your life where you experience challenges, difficulties, or struggles. It could be a relationship. It could be your most important relationship. If you're married, a marriage. It could be a work situation, a financial condition. Haran for you might be that impossible person that you work next to every day. It could be a troubling health condition. Why does God still allow us to go there? Or if you want to use sovereignty language, why does God send us there to Haran? Why doesn't he let us just chill and stay in the promised land? Hebrews 12, 11 says, No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. If you're in Haran, you need to know today God still loves you. And God's looking out for you, and God's watching you. And he's not trying to destroy you. He's trying to help you. He wants you to turn to him and for your strength and trust and hope to be in him because he wants you to get to the point where your life, to use that verse, can be lived the right way, a God-honoring way. It's wise to turn to God because the reality is in the course of our lifetime, we're going to make a f- quite a few trips to Haran. All of us will. None of us are exempt. None of us are going to get a free ride. So I just want to ask you kind of a next level question this morning. Because you've gone through Haran. Maybe some of you are there today. And hopefully you've turned to God. 
in Haran. But the even deeper question is, have you gone so far as to thank God for your Haran? I mean, seriously. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Have you thanked God for your Haran? If you've been bitter, angry, depressed, you want to give up, whatever it is, first step, turn to God. Second step, thank God for your personal Haran. Because if you do, God can radically change your life for the better. And you don't have to spend a life being angry, but instead you can rejoice that God is disciplining you because he's developing character in you. He's helping you persevere, and he's getting you to the place where you live a life of hope, able to pursue right living the way God intended. What's your Iran? And will you turn to God, and will you thank him that he's working in your life in the midst of it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult conversation, Lord. First of all, it's difficult because we're, we're looking at a story here and it, it raises so many questions for us. And, and I really do love, Lord, that your word just, it doesn't hold back. It shares truth and reality and it doesn't try to sugarcoat the lives of, of the patriarchs. We get to see the good, yes, but we see the bad and the ugly. Let's me know, God, that they're not much different than us. And that's why you work in our life and you want to grow us and develop us and shape us more in the image of Christ. And so, God, I pray that each person here, no matter what they're going through, no matter what their challenges, no matter what their difficulties, that they would turn to you, they would trust you, they would thank you. And, God, you would develop our character in each of us so that we can pursue right living the way you intended. That's my hope. That's my prayer for each person here this morning. And God, part of that right living is that sanctification is, you know, being, following your commands and obedient and being obedient to that. And, and Lord, we love this time of, of giving an offering to you. It's a worship time. It's a time to say, God, here, you've asked us to do it and we trust you with a portion of our income and use it, God. It's all yours, but use this for your glory. Thank you for letting us worship you by giving to you. And so, God, some will come now to give to you. Use this for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name.